Please pray with me. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for your word for us this day. We ask your blessing on this time as we um, hear your word and consider your message for us this day. We give thanks to you. We praise your name this day. Amen. Over the next few weeks, culminating on Mother's Day, we're going to be looking at some Old Testament women. Women whose stories appear in the Old Testament and whose stories reveal to us much about the human story, but also much about who God is. Now, starting back in Advent and through Christmas, Epiphany, and into Lent, on many of the Sunday mornings, we've been looking at texts that show us something of the identity of God. The gift that these women from the Old Testament will give to each of us is a little bit more of a revelation into God's character. But even more so, and perhaps even more than the more commonly told stories from the Old Testament, the ones we know, the ones involving a lot of men, even more so, these texts speak into our lives about the things that matter for us and for our world today. They show us something of the human experience. And through the lens of these women, we begin to ask ourselves the questions about what the text might mean for us, but also for our world, for our church, and for our relationship with God. Now, choosing four texts was a challenge for a couple of reasons. And I'm considering making this sermon series an annual occurrence because there are too many to choose from. But in full disclosure, It was also a challenge for me because I found myself playing the role of censor. You see, many of the women in the Old Testament are treated very inhumanely. There are many stories that have great things for us to learn that I would have loved to have told, but then I realized that it just wouldn't work in our multi-generational context. And I want to acknowledge this because these women, like women you and I may know, like, like some of you, have suffered much. They suffered much abuse and they shouldn't be edited out or ignored. We do need to tell their stories and we need to give voice to their experiences. But our context matters, our timing matters, and the right place and time matters. So for the four lessons we'll use over the next four weeks, while they're rich in struggle and drama, they're not going to include some of the most powerful and challenging texts from the Old Testament involving women. I'll try to share some of those with you in different contexts when appropriate. I also want to identify another uncomfortable reality. The women of the Old Testament and women generally in scripture and in contemporary history even have not been given the proper attention, especially though in Christian history. In fact, many of those heinous stories that I alluded to earlier, the commentaries that are written on them seem to just be used to dismiss the actions of terrible men. They justify the actions. And I I have a problem with that. And that's part of why I think it's important for us to look at those texts and the texts that we're going to look at over the next four weeks. And so this week, we begin our series with the widow of Zarephath. Like many of the women in the Old Testament, we know this woman by her status and her location. We never know her name, and she appears only in a very short section of the book of 1 Kings. 
But even just from the description, the way that she is described, we know a lot about this woman. We know that she's a widow. We learn very quickly that she has a son. So she's a single woman raising a child. Now, while this is difficult in any context, it would have been particularly difficult in the ancient Near East, where a man was seen as the provider and the protector. Interestingly, though, her town, Zarephath, it's also important. Because this is a foreign place in the Old Testament. She's not in Israel. And this matters because in Israel, the Jews are commanded by law to care for those who can't care for themselves, especially widows and orphans. But not in Zarephath. And so when we meet this woman, she's in a very bad position. She's a widow raising a child in a land where there's no help for her. And she's in a particularly bad position because there's a drought in the land. And so there's another key character in this text, the prophet Elijah. One of Elijah's most important roles as a prophet was to stand in the face of the king, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And he was basically trying to get Ahab and Jezebel to obey God. When we think of prophets, we often, we often think of people who tell the future, right? Prophecy. But really, most of the time, prophets are people who are trying to point other people back to God. They're trying to identify things that are wrong in a situation and make them right. Elijah tells Ahab that unless and until Ahab obeys God, there will be a drought. Obviously, the drought makes life difficulty for everyone, but especially the ones who are already struggling, the ones with minimal resources on the margins. And this is where our story begins today. God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath. And he says that he will find a woman there who will feed him. But did you notice that she didn't get the message, did she? She didn't get the message from God. He shows up, and he asks her first for water. And she goes to get him some water. But then she asks, he asks her for food. And then she's a bit surprised. She's surprised not just because it's bold of this man to come and ask her for food. But she's also surprised because she doesn't have any food to spare. Quite dramatically, she says that she's down to the last of her resources. Her shelves and jars are empty, and she's going to make one last meal so that she and her son can eat and then die. You'd think Elijah would catch a clue here. She's not refusing to be hospitable. She gave him the water. But she's being honest, and she's confessing that she simply doesn't have anything more to give. You'd think that Elijah would give her a break and move on. Maybe he misheard what God was telling him to do, but he doesn't. Instead, he looks at the woman and he says, essentially, okay, that's great, but first make me a cake. And then, then you can make a cake for you and your son. And then he says to her, my favorite words in scripture. I hope you heard them. Don't be afraid. Ha! Don't be afraid. I'm at the end of my rope. 
My child and I are going to die and you tell me not to be afraid when you're asking me for my last meal? When you're shortening the little time I have left, do not be afraid. We've heard the words before, just last week, and I'll say it again. When we hear these words, when we hear these words, we, of course, have every reason, every logical reason to be afraid. And when fear is what guides our actions, when we attempt to act rationally in the face of the fear, when fear guides us, of course, when we're faced with scarcity like this woman, our natural inclination is to protect or even to hoard. We saw this fear triggered a few weeks ago when people in their fear began hoarding food and toilet paper and sanitizer and other items, right? When fear guides our actions, the outcomes become tragic. Or as the famous philosopher Yoda puts it, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. It took everything in me to not try to do that in his voice. And so, yes, the widow is afraid. But Elijah promises her that the God of Israel will ensure that she does not run out of flour and oil. And while this sounds great, we have to wonder what she was thinking and why she'd listened to this man. It sounds too good to be true. But she also didn't have much to lose, did she? Maybe this gave her a little bit of hope. Maybe she even felt badly for Elijah and had compassion for him and wanted to make him feel better. We don't know what motivated this woman. But what we know is that she trusted Elijah and she shared what she had. She was generous. And the oil and flour didn't run out. She trusted. She took the risk. She chose trust over fear, and the oil and flour didn't run out. In the midst, in the midst of uncertainty, she didn't hold on to the scarcity, and the oil and flour didn't run out. So often our lives are complicated and driven by our fears, and as I've said before, I don't propose that we can fully escape our fears, but, but maybe we can take some control, have some agency over some aspects of our lives where we can look at God in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of what feels like a time of scarcity, in the midst of our fear, and choose to trust and take the chance like the widow of Zarephath. It's interesting to me that the widow of Zarephath trusts this foreign man she doesn't know and this strange God she doesn't know. She sees something that draws her in and enables her to trust them even without knowing them. Theologians and pastors love talking about knowing God. It's been the human quest since the beginning, since the Garden of Eden. And it makes sense, right? We're told that we're made in the image of God and the more we can try and understand and know God, then perhaps the more we can understand the most mysterious of beings, ourselves. For the widow, and for you, and for me today, the first step in knowing God, the first step 
is trusting God even when we don't know God, trusting God in uncertain times. Something I think we all know a little bit about right now. And maybe that's exactly what faith is. Holding our empty jar. Holding our present circumstances. Holding our uncertainty. Holding our empty jar and following a God we may not know and certainly don't understand fully. Holding our empty jar and trusting in the possibility and the promise of abundance. Friends, may we follow in this woman's footsteps. Footsteps that lead us to the God who delivers. The God who loves us. The God who provides. The God who is bigger than our empty jars and our longing hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.